Welcome to the GBC Sermon Podcast, a weekly podcast from Gamia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. I'm Mark Rader, Senior Pastor here at GBC, and thanks for joining us this week. Well, Happy Easter. He is risen. This week's message is from Easter Sunday, in which we look at Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22, to explore part of what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection. The Bible reading this morning comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And in the NIV, it's subtitled, Jews and Gentiles Reconciled Through Christ. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple of the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Thank you, Sue. Good morning. He is risen. Ah, Some of you are here from the very beginning. Well done. Uh, welcome to those of you who are joining us on site. Thank you for those of us, for those of you who are joining us online. I've been following along in the chat as I tend to do on a Sunday morning. So when I am on my phone, I'm usually commenting rather than looking up Facebook or whatever the case might be. That's my defense. Uh, but it's great to have you with us joined here. Uh, special welcome to those of you who may be visiting, whether this is the first time you've been with us online uh, and are just kind of ch- checking us out. It's great to have you with us. And for those of you who might be here uh, because you're with family, because this is kind of one of the few times the year that you turned to spiritual things and have decided to join us here, or whether you're a regular, it's great to have you with us. Trust that you feel welcome, but also that you know that we don't believe you're here by accident, uh, but that you're here on purpose and that the Lord may actually have something for you to hear today. So I hope that you're open to hearing that uh, this morning as well. 
Well, as we uh, turn to the, uh, the, the text this morning, you may have been struck by the fact that it's not really your classic resurrection text. Mahalath read one of those earlier for us, one of the accounts from the four different gospels, from Mark's gospel this morning. Uh, and, uh, and I want to kind of give you some explanation for why we have chosen to do this in this passage from the letter to the church at Ephesus. Uh, if you've been around the block a few times or you paid any attention to what Easter is all about, you'll know that Easter is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. It is the most important festival of the Christian church. Uh, and it is, of course, wrapped around what happened in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But there's actually more to it than just Jesus's death and resurrection. That would be pretty amazing in and of itself, but there's more to it for Christians. Because for us, it's not just about what happened on that weekend uh, 2,000 years ago. It's actually to whom it happened and why it happened. Uh, so as I said, for someone to die and three days later rise again is fairly miraculous and pretty spectacular. But we actually believe that Jesus was not just some fellow. He wasn't just some Jewish teacher of the law who happened to have this miraculous thing happen to him. But we actually believe that he represents for us the fullest humanity and the fullest divinity. That he is in some way, shape, and form that goes beyond the scope of a 25-minute message to explain fully God and fully man, that he is God in flesh. And because Christians believe that about Jesus, it means that when that person dies and is raised to life, there's probably more going on than just another miracle. And in fact, that is what Christians believe. Uh, as we've sung these songs, if you've been familiar with them, you might have been kind of swept up in the fact that you might not have sung them for a while and so off you kind of went. But if you were paying attention to the lyrics, you may have noticed how frequently they talk about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And they talk about what Jesus accomplished in a whole bunch of different ways. They talk about his victory over sin and over death. They talk about salvation and new hope and new life. And all of those things are true and well worth focusing on. But over the course of this Easter, we've chosen to focus on another component of, of what Jesus' death and resurrection was all about. To focus our attention, in fact, on what Jesus himself says part of what he is doing in his death and resurrection is all about. And that's in relationship to the temple. So this phrase, in three days, is obviously a reference to the time that Jesus spent in the grave. Friday evening, Saturday, and part of Sunday morning. But it's also a reference to some statements that Jesus made about what would happen during those three days. One of which ended up getting him into a great deal of trouble. Jesus is on record in all of the gospel accounts as having said, so lots of people could hear him, that in three days he would destroy the temple in Jerusalem and build another one. That ended up being one of the charges that actually sticks when Jesus is tried. It's one of the aspects of the mockery against Jesus when he's on the cross. And so we thought it might be worth exploring this idea of what it is that Jesus did and what it means when Jesus says that he's replacing the temple and what it means for us. Not just kind of what it means from a scholarly academic level, but what does it actually mean for us? We talk a lot about what forgiveness means for us, what salvation means for us, and there's time and place for us to explore those other aspects as well. But this is what we're focused on this morning. And so it begins by just giving you a very brief overview of the significance of a temple. 
I mean, this is a church building, but I don't think any of us would call it a temple. And we got a coffee machine. That doesn't sound like a temple, right? Uh, This is a gathering place more than anything else. But in the ancient world, temples were, of course, very significant buildings. They were representative architecture. They represented the relationship of a city or of a region with the divine. Uh, They came to symbolize more than just the city, but kind of the, shall we say, the spirit of the city. Last Sunday, I made kind of a a connection with the Sydney Opera House. Uh, Even if people are unfamiliar with the city of Sydney, if they couldn't name any of our suburbs, if they couldn't get around one place to another, if they have no idea where the beaches are and which beaches they are, they probably recognize the Sydney Opera House, don't they? That and the bridge, there's something about that architecture that is kind of symbolic of the spirit of the city, right? Surrounded by water, beautiful, unique, the whole kind of piece. Temples functioned in that kind of way. But they were symbolic because they were where heaven met earth. They were one of the places where you could be certain to experience the divine in a particularly significant way. Not that you couldn't experience the divine anywhere that you were, but it was kind of the difference between listening to your favorite band on Spotify and seeing them in concert. It's the same music, isn't it? But there's something about a live experience that's a little more real. All right, it's like watching your favorite sporting team in their home ground, right? Ah, you can listen to it on the radio, you can watch it on television. It's the same game. In fact, you might get better coverage of what's taking place on television, but there's something about being in the stadium, isn't there? That makes it just a little more real. There was something about being in the temple that made that encounter with the divine just a little more real. And so people would travel from all over the world to come to the temple in Jerusalem. This symbol of God and humanity meeting, this place which was just a little more real, a live experience, shall we say. And it's that connection that was so significant. Because the relationship between the gods and humanity is actually a really important one in antiquity. It was the idea that what the gods provided was everything that was necessary for life. So the laws that were given by the gods were not just a bunch of arbitrary do's and don'ts, you know, as if the gods just got bored one day, let's let's see if I can get them to eat some weird food and stuff. No, the, the laws were given in order that people might know how to live in the best way possible. And by living the best way possible, they would experience blessing. And that blessing would be rolled out in all sorts of ways. It would be rolled out in health over sickness, in safety over danger, in peace over war, in victory over failure, in fertility, in all the other ways you can think of blessing. And so the temple was often described by some of the prophets as being the source of teaching, to teach the entire world how best to live, and also as a source of blessing. It's a powerful image in a prophetic book called Ezekiel where the prophet sees a river that begins to trickle out from under the altar and becomes this overwhelming water source that brings life everywhere it goes. This was the power, the beauty, the significance of the temple. And so when Jesus says, I'm gonna knock it down and replace it with myself, 
Can you see why the religious leaders didn't think very highly of that? It was blasphemous. Because what he was basically saying is, I will become the source of teaching about the best way to live. I will become the source of blessing rather than the temple. And I will become the place where God dwells with his people, where heaven touches earth. Now, if it were anybody else other than Jesus, I think even we would struggle with that. And so this is part of the reason why he was executed. But in his death and resurrection, he replaces the temple. Fine, you say. I'm right with you. So what? When do we get to the Easter egg part? Like, what's the connection? You teach at a Bible college, don't you? Yes, I do. Here we go. Ephesians chapter 2, right? Jesus has died, he has been raised to life, and a few days later, a few weeks later, he ascends into heaven. And he leaves his followers to figure out what it means for Jesus to be the new temple. And if you, if you read through the gospel accounts, if you remember the reading that was done at the beginning of the service in Mark chapter 16, it's, they're all weird. Because in the moment, nobody can figure out what's happening. Nobody figures it. Did you hear how that reading finished? Mark 16, verse 8. The women, bewildered, fled and told no one because they were scared. End of story, roll credits. <laughs> and all of them are like that. Nobody figures out what's going on. Like, it's just a fascinating thing. But over the next generation, the followers of Jesus began to really significantly think about what it was that Jesus had accomplished. They began, in essence, to do theology. And good theology is where what we think about God actually intersects real life, where it actually begins to connect with what we are doing. And so here we have, and this is a letter to the church at Ephesus, which was a significant city in the Roman province of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Paul, an early follower of Jesus, is writing to a group of followers of Jesus. And he's talking about theology. He's talking about the significance and importance of what Jesus has done. Now, you may have picked it up as this was read, but, but Paul is speaking to two different groups of people in the one community. He is speaking to two cultural groups of people. He is speaking, first of all, to those who are Gentile Christians, and he is speaking as well to those who are Jewish Christians. Now those designations, Jewish and Gentile, are cultural distinctions. So from the perspective of Jews, Jews were their ethnic cultural group, uh, descendants of Abraham who had lived in the, the land of what we would call Israel today, but had lived there and now were scattered abroad and were identified by certain characteristics and ways of life. And many of those Jews had begun to follow Jesus. Then you had Gentiles, which from a Jewish perspective was everybody else. Now, Gentiles came in more than one flavor, as you can imagine, but from the Jewish perspective, all the Gentiles kind of did it wrong before they began to follow Jesus. But now Paul is writing to a community of faith, a group of people that is made up of both Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile followers of Jesus. And there's a group of them, the Gentiles, who don't feel like they quite belong. Because it's very clear to them that some of the things that their Jewish friends know about the Hebrew scriptures, 
about how to live appropriately, about the promises that God has made, about who Jesus is and the significance of them. They seem to know a whole lot more than they do, and they are feeling outside. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure that some of you here this morning may perhaps feel like outsiders, either because you don't know very many people here or because you don't attend very frequently or you don't know your Bible very well and you're really hoping there's not a pop quiz at the end or because you really can't tell the difference between an Anglican and a Baptist from 10 feet and on and on and on and on it goes. And some of you probably feel like outsiders and you've been here a long time. This is where the death and resurrection of Jesus becomes really intensely practical. Let me digress for a moment. Because Paul wants to address this issue of having insiders and outsiders in the one group of people. And so he wants to apply some theology. He wants to apply some thinking about God and Jesus to that matter. And he does so in a very significant way. But I want to use a slightly different metaphor. One of the difficulties that we have in our current Shall I call it political discourse, even though discourse suggests that we're actually listening to one another, so I'll, but I'll use it nonetheless, right? One of the characteristics of our current political discourse is that there is a growing division, isn't there? And increasingly, things are black and white. It doesn't matter what the issue is, there's a black and there's a white answer to it, and depending on how you answer, I can tell whether you are an insider, like me, or an outsider, like them, Right? And the problem with using the uh, kind of the language of issues becoming black and white is that if we were to assign the color white to a particular side of the argument, guess who gets to be white? Me, us, the insiders, right? And the problem with choosing the color white is that if you add anything to it, its whiteness gets ruined. It's no longer as pure, it's no longer as clean. You follow me? And so part of what ends up happening is I have to fight to maintain the purity, the sanctity of my position and keep all the black stuff out of the white. It becomes a purity issue. Are you with me on this one? For the people of, for, for Jewish people, part of the way they distinguished themselves from the world around them was to see the world in black and white terms. That they had been those who had been set apart by God to live a particular way that was related to purity and cleanliness and holiness. And so anyone who kind of came in to that situation from outside, anyone who was not white, they began to taint what was pure. Do you see the problem? for a community of faith, even though we both say that we're following Jesus, I look at you and I think to myself, you're an outsider. Here's what Paul does. What Paul does, and if you go back and read the first part of chapter two, he makes it very clear that both the Jews and the Gentiles, both groups of people, neither of them could classify themselves as white or as black because both of them were not right with God. And part of what Jesus does is makes them right with God. But here's the point. 
Essentially what Paul says, thinking theologically, is instead of this being some sort of spectrum, where instead of being polarized, instead of thinking about the, the world in terms of black and white, we need to think of in terms of blue and red. That the Jews were blue, not pure, not perfect, not without taint, not without flaw. And the Gentiles were red, equally flawed, equally tainted. And what Jesus has done is not created a community of faith that is blue with red polka dots or red with blue stripes, but has created a purple community. My wife's an artist, so I can... <laughs> She's horrified that I've told you that, right? <laughs> Jesus has done something utterly different. He has taken two things that nobody thought could mix together and he's brought them together to create something new. Listen again to these words. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile them both to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. This is what Jesus has accomplished in part in his death and resurrection. He has created a new community, a new way of relating to God. And then listen to what he says at the end. Consequently, you, those of you who feel on the outside, are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, in Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. I will destroy this temple, Jesus says. I will destroy the temple of stone. I will destroy the architectural wonder where people found connection, this live connection with God. I will replace that with something completely different. You know what his new temple was? What his new temple is? Look around. You here today are what Jesus accomplished in his death and resurrection. Taking those who were far and those who were near and creating in himself one new community. A community, strangely enough, that is to become the source for our world of teaching about how to live in ways that please God. A community that is somehow supposed to be an outworking of the blessing of God in the world. A community of faith that is to be somehow a place where people can experience the love and the grace and the reconciliation and the forgiveness of God himself. Do we do it perfectly? No. 
No, we don't. But it's not a matter of having our whiteness somehow tainted. It's a matter of stepping into our purple, if I can mix metaphors. Jesus won a victory over sin. He won a victory over death. He gave us forgiveness and salvation and hope and a future and on and on it goes. But this morning, today, this Easter, what I want you to hear is that Jesus also, in his death and resurrection, created a community where we can know God and others can know him too. And to that end, I have a word for you Gentiles this morning. Those of you who feel that you are on the outside. Those of you who think to yourself, you know what, I, I, I don't know if I fit. Can I invite you to join us as we seek to learn what it means to be purple people? Can I invite you to join us as we seek to follow Jesus and as we seek to follow Jesus together? Because part of what he has accomplished is not to make all these little nice, pure, shiny people that he can put up on his kind of, uh, his display cabinet and go, look at these shiny people, aren't they good? But it's to create a community where people can learn to follow him together. I want to reiterate something that I haven't said for a while, but I think it's really important. It's simply this, that anyone can begin to follow Jesus. If you are to read one of the Gospels, Matthew's account, it's the first of the stories of Jesus. In chapter four, he calls the first disciples. They're fishermen. Uh, and he calls them and says, just follow me. And they begin to follow him. And what strikes me as so profound is that Jesus does not ask them to change their lifestyle, to start living in a different way. He doesn't ask them a kind of a, a bunch of questions about the Hebrew scriptures or about how often they pray or how often they go to synagogue. And he doesn't ask them whether they believe that he's the son of God or not. All he asks is, are you willing to follow me? And when they say yes, he says, well, come on then. And as the story unfolds, as you read it through, you don't have to, you don't have to read it very carefully to see that the disciples have no idea who Jesus is. They do not believe who Jesus says he is. They don't understand the Hebrew scriptures. And they haven't really figured out the implications of following Jesus for their life. And these are the people that Jesus makes his closest companions, the ones he spends the most time with. He invests his life into them. They are with him till the end, and then he gives them the great commission to carry on the work. And at the beginning, when they begin to follow him, they have no idea what's going on. They have made no changes to their life, and they have no faith to speak of. Anyone can begin to follow Jesus. Do you think questions or doubts keep you from following Jesus? You need to read the Gospels and see the questions that the disciples had after being with Jesus for like two years. It's a little embarrassing. You think you have kind of things to work through in your life? Yeah, you probably do, but so did the disciples. Now, as you begin to follow Jesus, you will inevitably learn more about him. And when you learn more about him, it will challenge what you believe about him. And once you figure out what you believe about him, that's going to have some consequences for your life. So be warned. But to begin to follow Jesus, you do not need to believe certain things. You don't need to know certain things. You don't need to live in a particular way. 
You only have to be willing to follow him. And if you are willing to follow him, we would love for you to join us as we try to follow him too. Maybe you have a friend who has followed Jesus for a while. Or maybe you want to ask them if they would read the Bible with you. Pick one of the Gospels and read a section through and then ask yourself four questions. What stands out to you? What questions do you have? If this is true, what invitation is there for me to change my life? And who can I tell? And just read the Bible through. Or maybe you are at a position where you'd like to come to Alpha, that international movement that answers questions about what people believe about Jesus. A place where you can just ask your questions in a safe sort of space. Well, maybe it's time for you to do that as well. But at the very least, can I encourage you to do that here? To join us as together we seek to follow Jesus together. Because that's part of what Jesus did on Easter Sunday. When he was raised back to life, not only is there victory over sin and death and the assurance of the life to come and all of that, but there's also the spectacular community of faith that he invites us into to continue to learn what it means to follow him as a dwelling place of God. So I'll leave that challenge with you. I hope that you would take it up. Whether you're here on site, whether you're online, we'd love for you to be a part of what we are doing here as we seek to follow Jesus together. I want to pray for us. I'm going to invite the, the worship team up. And after I pray, we're going to sing a couple more songs. And both of these songs reflect on other aspects of what Jesus accomplished. So we're going to sing uh, another hymn, uh, Jesus Paid It All, talks about um, our need for salvation, for uh, a need for forgiveness and what Jesus did. And then we're going to sing Amazing Grace, a song that you might be familiar with even if you don't know the song. It talks about what Jesus accomplished in giving sight to those who are blind, about finding those who are lost, about bringing us all together into one community. So would you join me as we pray? And then we'll stand and sing together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you sent Jesus. And Lord Jesus, thank you that you do not demand that we um, attain some sort of level of uh, belief or lifestyle or knowledge before we can start to follow you. And I pray for those of us who are here this morning, perhaps who have been here a long time, perhaps who are just visiting, who feel a little bit on the outside. I pray that by your spirit, you might encourage each of us to continue to follow you. And that as you build this community and communities around the world together, that we might indeed be a demonstration of part of what you accomplished. A community where people can learn how to follow you. A community where people experience the blessing of being in relationship with you. And a community where we encounter you together. I pray that you would bless us in the time that we have remaining and watch over us this weekend. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Part of Jesus' purpose in his death and resurrection was to establish the church as a new humanity. Little patches of purple. I hope that any of you who feel a bit on the outer, who feel a bit blue or red, have been encouraged to join some purple people and continue to follow Jesus. Remember, we produce discipleship menus for our sermons, a set of simple activities that help us keep these themes on our hearts and minds throughout the week. 
These menus are available on our website under the Next Steps tab. We also release the GBC Big Three, a weekly podcast that engages with three questions raised by this sermon. It comes out on Wednesdays and is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for joining us again this week. You can join us for our services on site at 9.30 and 6 p.m. or online at www.gbconline.org.au at 9.30 Australian Eastern Standard Time. Until then, God bless.